I'm excited to be part of, of the demo day. Um, Andy and I work at Fenwick and West, um, and we specialize in all things blockchain. Andy, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so we'll, we'll be short here. We don't have a ton of time. I help teams build Web3 systems. So L1s to centralize exchanges and everything in between, whether it's DeFi protocols to NFT drops and everything in between. And I'm, I'm one of Andy's top lieutenants, so, so help him with all the, the product design. So today we thought we'd do something a little fun, given that we don't have too much time to actually walk through our entire design and thinking when, when we're working with clients. Um, and it was just to do a, a fun top down top 10 countdown uh, in the spirit of what Dave Letterman used to do when he hosted The Tonight Show. Um, so, so starting with number 10, um, don't price token network too early in the process. We work with clients all the time who unfortunately, whether it's pursuant to a SAFT or some other token instrument, will price the network at anywhere from $10 million to $100 to $200 million at a time before they've done any sort of um, tax planning to, to optimize getting the tokens at a low basis into the founding peeps hand. Um, and, and when they do that, it sometimes is, is an unsolvable problem. A lot of times we can solve it, but it results in a lot of headaches for the client. It's an expensive mess to, to solve that it obviously increases the tax risk going forward um, in the event that the IRS ever audits any of the companies involved in the ecosystem. So, so best to not price the token network and until you've spoken to your attorneys. Number nine is don't openly talk about the price or value of your project token, right? So library is one example where if you think about the ecosystem that we're working in, there are private plaintiffs, there are the SEC and other regulators. And when you're talking openly about your market cap in sort of a scofflaw way, it is much more likely that you're going to attract the unwanted attention of the SEC or another regulator. In the library case is a good example of creating a high profile by talking sort of recklessly about your project. Yeah, here, I mean, did they come out and they openly say, this is our market cap, we don't care. And even though our market cap is very high, the value of our, our product at this point is very low. And here are all the things that we'll be doing to drive value for the token. So just message discipline is very important. Number eight, don't get too high on your own supply. Um, we have experienced a lot of clients who over allocate tokens amongst the insider team. And when you do that, obviously that increases potential scrutiny from, uh, the SEC, it increases the likelihood of the token being deemed a security, um, given that the interests of the insider team are clearly very aligned, um, with, with retail purchasers. And honestly, SEC interests aside, it can um really be the death knell for a project if it's deemed that that, that if, if the community perceives the insider is having too much of an allocation because there's not a sufficient way to get to a place of decentralization to actually build an actively engaged um ecosystem and community don't forget to wrap your DAO. So in the early years, uh, and I started in the space in 2016, there was a question about 
should there be any entities involved in what we now call DAOs? Back then, we didn't even have that that term, uh, but in your community. And I was always of the view that we need to put an entity in place for a couple of different reasons. One is limited liability protection, right? The same reason why we have corporations and LLCs. So the members, stockholders, and other agents are not personally liable. So that's one reason. And another reason is for tax purposes. So are these uh, groups, oh, I can, yep, are, are these groups an unincorporated partnership for taxation purposes? whether it's US or non-US. And so there's lots of examples out there, UkiDAO's one, um, Spartacus DAO, but there are lots of examples of uh, communities being in hot water because they didn't take the steps of wrapping their DAO with a, with a wrapper of some sort, typically a non-commercial entity, so a foundation. That's one of the reasons why you see those out in the wild. Go ahead to the next one, Beth. Yeah, I would just add here that even if you ultimately do not wrap your DAO, um, right? Bitcoin is not wrap ecosystem. You you should certainly consider it. And and where Bitcoin emerged more organically, if if you were intentionally creating a DAO, there there's probably a very compelling reason for having some sort of legal wrap or retail. Sorry guys, I'm having a bit of technical issues. Give me one second. Okay, number six, don't expect a DAO to ceremoniously ratify your prior actions. So we have worked with some notable ecosystems um, where there are certain pre-DAO launch expenses that are incurred or certain pre-DAO launch actions that are taken. And in the past, we've included that in the initial suite of proposals that go to the token holders to approve and it can backfire if the token holders decide that they don't actually want to approve actions that have already been taken. And so it, it's a, a better approach at this point, at least from our experience, to be transparent as to what transactions were previously taken and what actions went into creating the DAO um, and really presenting the, the community with, here's the framework for token holder governance, here are the rights that you have, if you're not happy with any of these rights, here, here's how you go about amending uh, the, the governance rights of token holders. But you should not be requesting approval for things that have already been taken because you never know what the community is going to do once they have the right to approve proposals. So again, Uki is a great example for a bunch of different things. Don't form a DAO to flout the law. And so there's a couple things that underpin this one. One is just because you have a non-US entity or multiple non-US entities in an overall system, it doesn't mean that the laws don't apply. And so we see all sorts of statements around, um, you know, we set up our entities so we don't have to comply with the law or we're outside of the US law, we're outside of the EU law. All of those things are objectively false and wrong, setting up a non-US entity does not insulate you from the US laws or any other country's laws. It is, you know, if you have a DeFi protocol that is offering, you know, a, a GUI or other services in a country, you're going to have to think through what is our compliance, what is our structure like offering this to those citizens and those residents. And so part of it is in substance, 
It is not a matter of setting up a non-US entity. You can do whatever you want. And then again, as we touched on earlier, message discipline is clearly, clearly important. So the SEC, private plaintiffs follow public communications, whether that's crypto, Twitter, the New York Times, or podcasts, and how you talk about your project publicly is critically important. Number four, don't engage in market manipulation. So this is an excerpt from the hydrogen case um where there was a market maker that was involved that was clearly given certain parameters to pump the price of the token manipulate the price of the token um and those that that action is illegal right and so we understand that at the time that the token is launched a lot of times it will be listed on exchanges a lot of times there may be institutional borrowers that are providing liquidity for the token or maybe those markets kind of emerge organically. That's that's certainly the preference. But what you certainly do not want is having a, a team of insiders that are working behind the scenes with market makers to pull, um, like to really be puppeteering and engineering the price of the tokens. Um, it's inevitably going to result in some sort of bad action whether that is an SEC enforcement action, whether it's a private planet bringing a, a case against you. Um, and I think it, it's pretty fair at this point to assume that most of the market makers would not even agree to this in the first place. And two, that a lot of the market makers that are out there are probably under some sort of um, subpoena or have received sub subpoenas from the SEC or other regulatory agencies. Um, so if, if you're a project, I think it's fair to assume that whatever communications that you are going to be having with market makers or other people um, involved in creating secondary markets uh, for your digital assets, that it's going to be reviewed by some sort of government agency. Number three, don't make it your business objective to never be regulated while simultaneously, in the words of your chief compliance office, officer, operating as a fucking unlicensed securities exchange in the United States. So clearly we're referencing sort of one of the smoking gun communications that came out of the Binance enforcement action. Um, in, in a couple of learnings from this, this was internal communications. And so what we have observed in our processes and what we've seen in litigation matters is those internal Slack channels, uh, like the legal Slack channel at the DevCo is always a hotbed of issues. People internally talking about price appreciation, or I've had a uh, uh, found out that a CEO sent an email to the entire organization saying, "Our token is in the red. We're going to work, you know, extremely hard this quarter to pump that price." Right, in sort of an office-wide email, all sorts of things where. Even if they're private and internal communications, they are absolutely subject to discovery requests and that information will be used against you. And so there is the concept of message discipline, which we work on really thoughtfully with public communications, but internal communications are equally as important. And part of this is building the right culture within your organization about we don't talk about price, we don't say things like we're operating a unread, unlicensed securities exchange in the United States. I mean, these are all just things that seem like they would be obvious. And as your organization grows, it's important to sort of build that culture in 
because it could it's not going to be the CEO and the board and our level sort of working through these things that's going to make these statements, but it's going to be more junior people in your organization that have a channel going. And that could be the thing that really sinks us or is against maybe the smoking gun type uh, discovery or exhibit that's really going to cause a problem with a private plaintiff or the SEC or other regulators. And so how we think about communication channels internally is deceptively important. And I've been, I think another thing to note there, and this is something that you don't necessarily need to think of too often when you're just a traditional startup attorney, but it's something that I'd think about probably every hour um, that, that I'm billing as a web free attorney is that it's very easy from an attorney's perspective to blow attorney client privilege. Right. And so we are working with multiple different entities within the same ecosystem. And we may represent certain of those entities there, but we don't represent all of them. And there are different employees, officers, directors sitting at each of those entities. And if you inadvertently send an email um, that copies an employee of two separate entities, there's a very good chance that you've blown attorney client privilege. Um, and even if you haven't, you're suddenly going to need to explain to the SEC or some other agency why that communication does not flow attorney client privilege. Um, and so it ju it's just something that I, I learned about attorney client privilege when I was in law school. I didn't really think about it for the first seven or so years of my career as just a traditional startup and M&A attorney. And it's something that I think about on, on an hourly basis at this point. Number two, don't violate sanctions. Um, there are a lot of examples that we could have given here. I mean, here obviously is CCZ, um, who, who's one of the more notable violators of, as of late. Um, and at the end of the day, as, as we discussed it's on some of the previous slides, just because you're doing Web3 design and, and working in the space does not mean that you should not be complying with the laws. Right. And so you, you need to comply with sanction laws. A, a lot of times that requires, unfortunately, geo-blocking in the U.S., just given the current regulatory climate here. It means um, doing IP screening of people in sanctioned parties, doing screening of, of sanctioned wallet addresses. Um, there aren't any that I know of on Solana right now, but there, there are a lot of Ethereum wallets that, that have been sanctioned. And... I would advise speaking with your attorneys if you're doing any sort of um, movement around digital assets or receiving payments, it's very important that that you're combined with sanctions laws. And one thing I'll add here is not all laws are created equal. And they're all very serious, but there is some order of priority here. So for example, securities laws, the SEC is civil only. That there's no SEC jail for people that have a Section 5 violation, which is an unregistered securities offering. And clearly, there are good faith positions around token designs and how we build them and how we, you know, plan A's, it's not a security, plan B's, we've complied with securities laws. There's a lot of good faith positions and design techniques that you can use and, you know, see Ripple, for example, but there's countless other examples. OFAC violations, there is no good faith position that you didn't need to comply with OFAC, right? That, that, that there is criminal enforcement. 
right? And so as an industry, we spend a lot of time talking about the securities laws and we need greater regulation and the rules are unclear. And I work with entrepreneurs that absolutely want to comply with the law. We're doing our best to do it. But if you just are running an application, if you're running a GUI on top of a protocol and you're allowing people from Iran, North Korea, Syrian, you know, people that are prohibited from using that, there's just there's just nothing that I can do for you there. Like you have to comply with those laws. And so while we can take very good and creative positions around certain regulatory regimes, these sanction violations are just not something to play fast and loose with or to find a gray area in. And the results of non-compliance are exceedingly serious. And so it's, um, you know, not all the rules, laws, and strategies are applied equally in every legal regime. Yeah, and, and a couple of things that, that that reminds me of. One, it's it's strict liability, right? So you, if, if you're taking preventative measures, that, that could be a mitigating factor when um, the government determines what your penalty is. But, but it is a strict liability for each individual occurrence, even if those are microtransactions. Um, and two, this can really gut the value of your company. So we have worked with um, some of our clients who have been able, because they were relatively risk on, they were able to acquire, um, one of them acquired a gaming studio where the studio was running a Web3 game and didn't have the proper sanctions compliance in place. And I, th I think the purchase price might have been a dollar, like it was very nominal because there was so much risk on the target company that our client was able to acquire for practically zero because the founder of the client of the target company just wanted out. Um, so if, if you want to build a valuable business, it's important that you comply with these laws. Uh, number one, don't take to Twitter when facing a challenging business situation, uh, deploying more capital steady lads, right? And so here, obviously not a big legal issue, but, um, yeah, you don't want to be embarrassed and communicate these types of things. And so again, we've talked a lot about message discipline, having a communication strategy. Well, this one is not purely legal in nature. You can see that there probably wasn't a thoughtful and comprehensive communication strategy that underlied sort of Doquan strategy as all of the Luna situation was unfolding. I'm going to challenge you, Andy, and say that this actually is a legal issue, or at least it could be. Um, because depending on who you are in the ecosystem and depending on what you're saying, this can create um, the the appearance of like this puts stress on the Howie test, right? Because yeah, let's, it, 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 yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah, let's explain that. So, for example, if it is a decentralized protocol, who is Do Kwan to be the one to deploy more capital into that? That's a point of centralization. So, in this statement, yes, we shouldn't have. The CEO of the protocol doing anything, it would be a group of guardians, I think was the way the Luna was set up, or some other similar model, security council that's going into maintenance mode. So it depends on the L2, the L1, what the overall uh, um, structure is and the technological design. But yeah, it wouldn't be the CEO, it'd be the guardians or the security council, the multi-stakeholders that are hopefully bottoms up elected. It'd be you know, interjecting more capital in this case or putting the protocol into a, into a maintenance mode, which we see sometimes. And then finally, there's one honorable mention that did not make the top 10, and that's don't try to come in and register with the SEC. Um, just given given the current climate that we're operating in, there there seems to be very little to gain. And it, it's unfortunate because we wish we could advise our clients, go 
talk to the SEC, they're going to be reasonable. Um, but there are several noteworthy examples where going in and trying to get rulemaking passed or trying to find a creative way or work within the confines of the anachronistic law to, to get your project registered. It just, it's backfired on a, on a lot of our clients. I have never had it work for anyone else beside Coinbase. We did the IPO, obviously, but for everyone else, it has only been for watching you sort of response from the SEC, which then puts us in a much more tenuous position as we move to token launch because we're on their radar because we got sort of a verbal warning. We know that we are, you know, going to be a higher probability of them investigating or looking into it. And so in the early years, before it was clear how hostile this regulator was going to be, uh, I've worked with a variety of projects that have gone in for conversations with the SEC and took him, you know, took him up on his offer to come in and talk. And none of those conversations were productive. They were always, in my view, counterproductive. And so other than the, you know, one instance of the IPO listing and then now the the Bitcoin ETF, it has not been a constructive conversation, in my opinion. It has been said, hopefully we get to a place to where it is. I would love to be able to engage in that, you know, dialogue with a serious regulator that is balancing innovation with protection. But unfortunately, that is just not today, in my opinion. And I mean, taking the Bitcoin ETF as an example, right? Like that that was only approved ultimately after a decade plus in the making, and it required Grayscale suing the FCC and a determination that the SEC was acting in an arbitrary and capricious manner. So not not uh, the best of actors, not, not good faith actors currently at this administration. Okay, seeing none, appreciate the time, everybody. Have a great day. This has been a Red Beard Ventures production.